Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Hey, join us at Walters for the first ever Nats Chat podcast party. We'll hang out, watch playoff baseball, chat about the Nats, and get to know fellow fans of the team. The event begins at 7 p.m. at Walters, just across from Nationals Park, on Friday night, October 14th. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 2-1. Swing a high drive. Well hit to right center. Robles going back at the track to the wall, looking up, and it's gone. Brandon Nimmo puts one over the fence just to the left of the 380 mark in deep right center for his 15th home run of the season. And the Mets now lead at 4-0. Diaz from the stretch. He kicks and he fires in a fastball and a check swing liner right into the glove of the first baseman Alonso. And the game is over just like that. And the Mets have taken game one of this doubleheader. And a swing and a drive to deep right toward the corner. Going, going, and gone. Goodbye. Another home run for the Mets. That one in and out of the second row of the upper deck and lands back on the field. They have started the bottom of the first inning with back-to-back to back home runs. It's the Mets three and the Nationals nothing. So here's the wind of the 2-2. Curveball blasted deep left center field. Forget about it. This one way back and long gone. The first big league hit for Francisco Alvarez, the 20-year-old rookie, is a long home run to make it 8-0 New York. And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, October 5th. 2022, what is the final day of the Nationals 2022 season, along with MassInSports.com Nats insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at City Field in New York City. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We hope that all of our Jewish brothers and sisters are having a safe and meaningful Yom Kippur. The weather in Washington, D.C. and in New York City, uh, rather miserable for days now. The Nats 2022 season has been miserable for months now. And Mercifully, the season is about to end, but uh, the season, unfortunately, not ending before some more pain. Game one of a doubleheader on Tuesday, a 4-2 Nats loss that dropped the Nats to 55 and 105, clinching them having the worst record in the majors for this season. Although, as you may know, that does not guarantee that the Nats will have the number one pick in the 2023 MLB draft, and then game two of a doubleheader on Tuesday, an 8 nothing loss that dropped the Nats to a Major League worst 55-106 and with a Major League worst run differential of minus 245. A rather rough outing for our guy, the secret weapon, 
Paolo Espino. Nats president of baseball operations and general manager Mike Rizzo on Tuesday afternoon conducted an end-of-season session with reporters. We certainly are going to get to that. But Mark, the end of the Nats season is just about here. I am guessing for the Nats, this end cannot come soon enough. Yeah, you know what, Al? We've talked about all year long about how they've played hard legitimately and we, you know, the boys battle and all that kind of stuff. These last few days, it kind of feels like they've reached a point they realize the end is in sight. The weather has been absolutely miserable. They're playing uh, teams that are still moving on to go beyond Wednesday. And it's kind of showing up a little bit in the performance. It's unfortunate that would happen, but I think it's also understandable at the end of a season like this. This was some ugly baseball. The nightcap especially, they struck out 17 times, one shy of the club record. You know, they're down 7 nothing in the first inning on a cold, windy, rainy night at the end of a doubleheader in game 161 of the season. I don't think anybody can find fault with that, but it was noticeable that it felt like a different type of effort from them at the end of this one. Yes, we call this tap-out time, and the Nats pretty clearly were tapping out, tappy-tap-tap on Tuesday night. Yeah, I mean, the only runs that the Nats scored on Tuesday came via a two-run homer by Riley Adams in the top of the fifth inning of game one. But that was it. I mean, the Nats in game one, just the two runs, seven hits, two walks, one for 12 with runners in scoring position. And then in game two, shutout, nine hits, a double and eight singles, zero walks. And like you just said, 17 strikeouts on what was a rainy, miserable night at City Field. Bad pitching for the Nats on Tuesday. Corey Abbott in game one, four runs, three earned in four innings. Uh, he only gave up five hits, but he issued four walks, a hit by pitch and a wild pitch. Did have six strikeouts, but 88 pitches, just 48 of which were strikes. And then Paolo Espino on Tuesday night. This really was unfortunate. And, you know, you almost have to laugh because the storyline from a Paolo perspective going into the game was, hey, could he finally get his first win of the season? Uh, The answer was an emphatic no. Paolo Espino ended up allowing seven runs and recording just one out. Yes, seven runs in a third of an inning. He began his start by giving up three consecutive home runs. And it was crazy because this happened while Yankees right fielder Aaron Judge in a 3-2 loss at Texas began that game by hitting his 62nd home run, setting, of course, a new American League record for most home runs in a season. So as Judge hit number 62, the Mets were hitting three consecutive homers off Paolo Espino. That was quite a time and space for New York baseball. Judge's number 62, and the Mets go back to back to back to begin things off Paolo. Yeah, I didn't even realize what Judge had done because I was so consumed with what was going on in front of my own eyes. You couldn't even tweet about the first homer until there's another homer being hit. The uh, press box announcer was starting to say that it was the fourth time, something like that, that the Mets had ever hit back-to-back homers to start a game. And he's in mid-sentence and he pauses because the next one goes out and he says, this is the first time in Mets history they've ever hit back-to-back-to-back home runs to begin a game. That was... um Really ugly. And I mean, it's the worst possible way to start a game. Paolo called this the worst outing of his life, including Little League. <laughs> so that tells you just how rare this was and how ugly it was. I mean, he didn't retire any of the first six batters, finally gets an out on a sacrifice fly, give up an RBI double, and then that's it. There was no reason to continue at that point. It's really unfortunate that the numbers for his season. He ends up with an ERA over 4.8, 
and I'm not going to try to make some kind of argument here that he had a great season because he did not. But I don't think 4.8 is reflective of what he actually did for them, nor the fact that he had zero wins, uh, I don't think. But I think if we did learn anything over these few months, I think we do have to acknowledge he is best suited to pitch in shorter in shorter bursts, probably out of the bullpen. I think the Nationals understand that and they will hopefully be in a position next year where they have five better options to start and can use Paolo Espino in the role that he's really meant for. Yeah, him moving to the rotation, him starting games this season ruined his stats for the season because his numbers for the season were quite good as a reliever and uh, things went downhill once he started starting games. Not that this matters, but it was kind of funny watching Davey Martinez just throw a new reliever out there like every five minutes it felt like on Tuesday night. The Nats in the game ended up using seven relief pitchers to get through the darn thing. Obviously, with one game left, you know, you're not really that concerned with the overusage of the bullpen, that kind of a deal. Here's everything you know about Paolo Espino. At the end of the night, because of what you just said, I think I asked him a question about how he would evaluate his season. And he says, well, it may not be over yet. If they need me tomorrow, I didn't throw that much tonight. I know the bullpen has been asked a lot. I will be here if they need me. If that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the man, he just suffered the worst outing of his life, any level, and he's already like almost hoping that he gets a chance to come back in the game 162 of a 106 loss season because he knows that his team needs it. Well, that's why he's Palo. That's why we love him. That's why even after seven runs in a third of an inning, you still want to just give the guy a big hug. You know, he's Paolo Espino. He's our guy. He is the flagship pitcher of the Nat Chat Podcast. And no, you can still get your secret weapon t-shirts by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. That's natschatpodcast.square.site. So while the Nats were getting pummeled in this doubleheader and clinching having the worst record in the majors, the Mets on Tuesday night were eliminated from National League East contention. The Atlanta Braves on Tuesday night clinched a fifth consecutive NL East title with a 2-1 win at the Miami Marlins. The last team that wasn't the Braves that won the NL East was the Nats in 2017, which now feels like about forever ago. But man, how about that? A, five straight division championships for the Braves. But B, this ends up being quite the collapse for the Mets. They were up by 10 and a half games on the Braves at one point. For so much of this season, this seemed like a different Mets team, a different Mets season. And look, maybe it still will end up being that. The Mets still have had a very good regular season. But the Mets do have a history of blowing some sizable division leads over the last, say, 15 years. And it has officially happened again this season. They blew a 10.5 game lead and the Braves, once again, are division champs. Yeah, I don't know how to feel about this one because they won their 100th game on Tuesday night. I find it hard to say that a team could win 100 games in the season and somehow blow it. I think this is more credit to the Braves for playing out of their minds for, what, a good four months and just surpassing the Mets. Now, were there games the Mets could have won if they just won one game in Atlanta over the weekend, if they had beaten the Nats earlier in the month? I think they also got, what, struggled against the Cubs. I mean, there were games that they could have won along the way, to be sure. But they did still win 100 games in the end, and that should be enough under any other circumstance to win your division. But as we've talked about all along, it completely changes their path now in the postseason. They will host a three-game wildcard series against either the Padres or the Phillies. 
And you would say either of those teams is certainly capable of beating the Mets in a best of three. And then if they get through that, having already used up DeGrom and Scherzer, they're going to get a best of five against the Dodgers after that. And good luck. (laughs) Again, would it shock me if the Mets now went on a run and went all the way? No, I think they have the personnel, certainly with their two aces at the top. But it also wouldn't shock me if their season is over within a week. And that would absolutely be a major disappointment for everyone around here who expected not just to make the playoffs, but to go very deep this year. They went all in on this this year. They got their 100 wins, but that doesn't really guarantee them much of anything. That's been fascinating to see. Well, I'm sure Mets fans in New York are reacting to this in a very you know rational, logical, data-based way. But, you know, it's funny, you mentioned the Mets' two aces. Those two aces came up small in a huge series at the Braves over the weekend. And while, yes, the Mets have 100 wins and they've had a very good season, they got swept at the Braves in a huge series over the weekend. And look, truth is truth. Max Scherzer did not do well. And the Sunday nighter, Max Scherzer came up small in a big spot for the Mets. And Jacob deGrom struggled in that series as well. But those are Mets' problems. Uh, the Nats have enough of their own problems. <laughs> Hey, Nat Chat listeners, Tim Shovers, producer of the podcast here. want to thank everyone that has donated to us so far. It is much appreciated. If you are unfamiliar with the donation option to support the podcast with all the production costs for this marathon season, you can go to natchatpodcast.square.site. That's natchatpodcast.square.site. Hit the Donate Now button, and uh, we go from there. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Nat season is ending. The weather is getting colder, but Window Nation has a great way to help you stay warmer and more comfortable and with incredible savings. Get two free windows with every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing with no interest until 2025. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. If you act now, you can get your new Window Nation windows installed before the holidays. Window Nation windows will keep you warmer, will reduce energy costs, and will add to the value of your home. Take advantage of this special offer. Two free windows with every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing with no interest until 2025. That's a deferred payment that impresses even the learners. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. That's windownation.com or call 866 866- 90 Nation and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. 
Well, I think our system's different right right now than it was a year ago. I think it's 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 deeper. We've had we've had two what I believe are successful trade deadline acquisition periods. We've had two successful drafts. We've done a good job in the international market. I, I think that uh, our prospect depth is is as good as it's ever been here in the, in the organization. And I think that the upside uh, of our prospect list is is probably the highest it's ever been. We on Tuesday afternoon prior to the doubleheader sweep at the Mets had Mike Rizzo's annual State of the State address uh, to reporters. Did like a, I don't know, 20 minute or so session with reporters uh, taking questions on the state of the team and the state of the season. I watched the presser. You were there. I guess it's to start with this. It felt like pretty much a paint by the numbers kind of end of season session by Rizzo. Nothing really that jarring or stunning. Is that how you found Rizzo's session to be? Yeah, there wasn't that one like major headline that came out of it in my mind, which isn't to say there weren't some useful answers and that we didn't ask some important questions. I hope we asked all the right questions along the way. I mean, we hadn't really talked to him in that kind of setting since the trade deadline. So there's a lot of ground to cover and there were certainly topics that we never got around to, but you get 20 minutes and you kind of have to call it after that. You know, there was an acknowledgement on his part that losing 100 plus games, having the worst record in the league is not satisfactory in his mind. But he is also making the point that they did make progress and that he feels like they're in a better position now than they were. Certainly since the trade deadline, feels like that has positioned them better to win sooner rather than later. I think maybe the most interesting thing, I asked him about the ownership issue and how that could change. You know, He said, well, of course, it could change if they if they sell the team. I think that would change things. Uh, so, it, you know, uh, I'm going to control what I can control. You know, we're we're a business as usual. We're going to go through the uh, the the end of this regular season, do our postseason uh, uh, work, and and try to explore every way to to get better. And we'll we'll get our marching orders and our direction from above when we get them. We'll we'll employ those directions. But until then, we're we're business as usual, like we've done every year. Well, that is a huge question and he doesn't really know the answer to that. And if the team is sold, that changes things. If the team is not sold, what are the parameters this winter? Is there money to be spent? So he he didn't go into any details on that, but you know, fully acknowledged that the ownership question kind of looms over everything and he's going to take his orders from whoever his boss is and proceed accordingly. But there are several different paths they could take this winter. They could be aggressive if they have money to spend. If they don't, could be a very quiet winter, and you may be looking at a roster that doesn't look dramatically different going into 2023. Yeah, I give you credit because you were the one who really asked him about the ownership thing, and nothing really matters more than that right now. And you almost feel silly discussing anything else with the team because the ownership thing is such a big thing, and the domino effect of the ownership thing could be everything. So, you know, he's answering questions about like off-season plans and, you know, how he's viewing this guy and that guy. And it's like, that's all fine and dandy. But if the team gets new ownership and new ownership wants to do X, Y, and Z, then that's what's going to happen, you know? And X, Y, and Z could include Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez being out. Like, we just don't know where this thing could ultimately be going. I mean, I thought it was notable Mike gave a lot of like generic, vague answers. Didn't want to be specific on many things, which you understand. I don't blame him on that. In terms of like actual news from the session, he referred to Steven Strasburg's future as a mystery, which is true, but it was kind of interesting to hear Rizzo say that. It's still a bit, little bit of a mystery. Uh, I know that he's working hard strengthening uh, his, uh, his core and, and uh, the other parts of his body. 
he was fairly adamant that Patrick Corbin is a part of this rotation next season. And he did the thing that he and Davey Martinez have done. Talked about, you know, Corbin's velocity and spin rate and made it sound like, you know, it's just a, a little tweak here and a twist there. And old Patrick will be right back to his 2019 self. Boy, that would be lovely, Mike. But uh, we've been waiting on that for a few years now. But that did stand out from Mike Rizzo. He got into Davey Martinez and the job that he has done seemed pretty complimentary of Davey. And there was also news with Davey on Tuesday, him reiterating that his entire coaching staff will be back for next season. Right. So if you remember back in July when both Rizzo and uh, Martinez's options were picked up for next season, Davey kind of threw out there the fact that his entire coaching staff had gotten two-year deals and the insinuation was that all of them would be back. Well, he was asked directly about that uh, today and he said, absolutely, they are all coming back. He feels like the team's record and performance is not a reflection of the job that his coaching staff has done. He talked about how many hours they put in, how committed they are to it. And he said he understands why a lot of people will look at a team's record and immediately look at the coaching staff and say, well, coaching staff manager should take the fall for that. And he pretty strongly defended the work that they've all done with them and, and included in that himself. And Rizzo, while not quite as forceful, did speak very complimentary of Davey and essentially saying that you judge a manager based on the circumstances that he's in. And, you know, implicit in that is when it's 2019 and they're trying to win, we know that there's a goal for them to win. You judge them a certain way. When it's 2022 and the plan going into the season was they knew they weren't going to win this year, you judge them a different kind of way. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting that, you know, an acknowledgement that the bar had been you know, lowered significantly this year. The evaluation of Davey Martinez and his staff was not going to be based on wins and losses this year. Probably more so was going to be based on the temperature of the clubhouse, the respect that he had or didn't have from players, and whatever improvements he saw, especially from young players along the way. And I think that that's totally fair. I mean, I do think, though, that you can't just absolve Davey of everything that happened this year. I mean, I think... One of the big things that ads need to do, and Mike did talk about, you know, conducting an autopsy on the team after this season, you know, you have to be honest about a lot of things. And we've had these conversations. You have to be honest about your player development situation. You have to be honest about guys getting worse, not better for you at the major league level. I mean, in Davey's case, we've talked about the base running, you know, how much of that is on him and his coaching staff. So I think these things need to be looked at. I do continue to find it funny. And look, I am in no way advocating for Davey to be fired. I don't think he should be fired. What, what has happened this season in the last few years isn't on him. But man, you look at his tenure as Nats manager, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. He's had one good season. You know, like that's crazy when you think about that. But the one good season was a World Series championship season. And that season was really good. And the other seasons, you can kind of explain away and understand. And so, yeah, even though it's one out of five that's been a good season for him as Nats manager, there's really not that compelling of an argument for him to be let go. It's such a unique predicament that Davey finds himself in. But yeah, one out of his five seasons has been good. But you say to yourself, yeah, he deserves to continue on as Nats manager. It is remarkable, though, what a World Series title will do for your reputation and your job security. Think about Dusty Baker in two years here, far superior record, won the division twice, almost like wire to wire. There was never any real controversy or difficulty 
until they got to October, in which case they lose in the playoffs in five games. And the standard at that point was, well, that's not good enough. We need to do better. Now you have his replacement, like you just said, one out of six years or five years, as, you know, a quote unquote success, only one time making the playoffs. But because he then did the whole thing, got him all the way to the end, that buys him a lot of goodwill for a long time. Now, I do think next year there is more pressure on him and on Mike Rizzo. Whether there's new ownership or not, they are both entering the final year of a contract. A team that you hope has hit rock bottom this year, you do have to see signs of improvement. That means record, but I think more than that, you need to, by the end of next season, be able to say that there are more legitimate pieces in place and they are closer to winning than they were this year. And that does then start to become a reflection, I think, of the GM and the manager. And the contract status helps make that decision. But I do think you can start to hold them a little more accountable for the team's performance in 23 than you did in 22. I want to get into this Brady House thing. I think this Brady House situation this year has been rather disturbing with the lack of information that we have been given about what is going on with him. And I think the concern that you have to have if you're a Nats fan with where exactly he's at. So Brady House, shortstop, third baseman, Nats took him out of a high school in Georgia with the number 11 pick in the 2021 MLB draft. Brady House this season, like, essentially disappeared. He went on the minor league injured list in the middle of June with a back injury, didn't return, and we kind of don't know much more beyond that. And I know that you asked Mike Rizzo about Brady House in this session. The responses weren't really loaded with details about what's going on with him. I mean, this is a young guy back issue. That seems kind of odd for a younger player to have to deal with that. But again, like mid-June and then he's gone and you've heard like very little about how he's doing. Where are we with Brady House? And what'd you think about what Mike Rizzo said to you about Brady House? He wasn't, you know, definitive the way that I would have hoped he would have. And I said, well, you know, how come he wasn't able to make it back this season and missed essentially four months at the end of the year? He says, well, he didn't make it back to the active roster, didn't play in games at Fredericksburg, but he was resuming baseball activities, I presume, in West Palm Beach. I don't know that for a fact. And so he he kind of downplayed that and made it sound like he's every expectation that he'll be good to go next spring. But I did ask, like, are you concerned when a player that young, I think he's still 19 years old, is dealing with a back issue? That's not something you typically think of with a young player. And, you know, Mike says, well, Having a back issue myself, you know, it doesn't feel good. I know that, uh, but uh, I, I think that uh, you know he's going to uh, he's he's doing well in his rehab, and I, I think he's well on on well on his way to you know getting back on the field in spring training and being being ready to go. Okay, fair enough. But Mike Rizzo had his back surgery in his fifties, not at age nineteen. I don't know that Brady House had surgery. I don't know exactly what the deal was there. So it is a little bit frustrating to not know more about this. I suppose. We'll just have to check in come February and March and make sure that he is out there playing in spring training and then starts the season on time. But we talked about all the issues they've had with draft picks and first round picks. And they've kind of made a point, and Rizzo did this again today, in talking up their most recent draft picks the last couple of years. He's sort of trying to absolve them of the three, four, five years ago that were almost at a point that you've just kind of given up on them. But talking up what they've done the last few years, well, Brady House is a big part of that. 
And they kind of need him to hit. They need him to be, before we even talk about becoming a big league player, they need him to start moving up the ladder and showing that he is an elite prospect. And there's just not enough body of work yet to do that with. So next year becomes a huge year for him. If it doesn't happen for him next year, now all of a sudden you're worried about what his progression is going to be like. I just know this in sports and you know this is true in other areas of life too. When an organization or an operation or an entity isn't providing you with details on a situation, you always have to ask, well, why is that? Why won't you just come out and say what exactly is going on here, why this happened here? And that's not to be like conspiratorial, but it is to say like, what are you hiding? What are you concealing? Why won't you just you know be upfront about where he's at? Like he's a young guy. He had a back problem. Why can't you just detail, here's what happened. Here's why he missed the rest of the season. Instead, he gives you this you know, vague kind of runaround answer. And I feel like that only adds to the mystery here and adds to the concern. I mean, we all want to see this guy thrive and become a great player for the Nats. And now you're going to go into next year worried about, well, what happened last year and why is that? And you know, if he had to miss ample time this year because of a back problem, Who's to say that he won't have to miss substantial time next year because of a back issue? Yeah, no, that's why I said that this isn't a an acute injury that we know of. You say, okay, well, he hurt his shoulder, he had surgery. Well, here's the recovery time for it. It's a more vague thing with his back. I'll also point out he missed some time earlier in the year with a COVID case, and we know that can have also, you know, unfortunately long lasting ramifications. You hope it's nothing like that. We'll see. You don't want to be dealing with any of this stuff with a kid that young, that promising. I mean, they were talking about him as the you know, best pure hitter to come out of the draft last year. Well, we need to start seeing that on the field. Maybe it'll all work out uh, and that'll be fine. But at the moment, there's not a lot to go off of. And uh, speaking of the draft, I wanted to mention this. You, you point out how they did clinch the worst record in the league. Can we talk about what that means in terms of the draft next year? Because it's not how it's been for decades and decades. No, uh, it doesn't mean a ton. So the Nats will have a top seven pick in the 2023 draft. But beyond that, nothing is guaranteed. The Nats will only have a 16.5% chance of getting the number one pick. The new collective bargaining agreement stipulates a draft lottery system in order to discourage tanking. And so the Nats, because they've enjoyed such wonderful luck these last few years, end up having the worst record in the majors in the first season in which we have a draft lottery for the following draft. Now, look, if you know MLB draft history, you know that draft order doesn't matter a ton. You can find great players basically anywhere in a draft. And the difference between having, you know, the number one pick versus the number four pick isn't that big of a deal. But you know, you'd rather have the number one pick than, say, the number seven pick, like if everything's equal. And the Nats, you know, there's at least a decent chance here that they're not going to have the number one pick. They may not even have a top five pick. So, yeah, <laughs> there's that that goes along with this uh, rough Nats season here. Yeah. So here's the thing. And MLB did this to try to, at the behest of the union, to try to discourage the open tanking that would take place from teams purposely trying to lose as many games as possible, land the the best possible draft pick, and then go from there. So at this point, you have the teams with the three worst records each get the same opportunity within the lottery, 16.5%. But any team that doesn't make the playoffs has a shot at the number one pick. Now, I mean, you know, the uh, Brewers who 
will have the, you know, the, the worst odds and it'll be like 1% or maybe even less than that, that they would get it. So I, I think that's all fine. What I was surprised at when I really started digging into the numbers is how little the Nats are guaranteed. It's not just they aren't guaranteed the number one pick, but it's like a 50-50 chance for them to have a top three pick. I think it's a little less than 50% when you work it out. So they could very easily end up with a worse draft pick in 23 than they had in 22, despite a much worse record in finishing last in the league. You know, I get the mindset behind all this, and I, I applaud MLB for trying to discourage tanking. But you'd also <laughs> hate to see a team that you know legitimately lost that many games suffer as a result and not give itself its best opportunity to climb out of this. I think we know that the Nationals are not trying to lose 100 games for years and years. This was part of a process they decided to do with the idea being that they're going to get better within a couple of years and they won't be in that position anymore. Well, if you there's a big difference in theory between getting the number one pick and the number seven pick towards getting better and not being in that position where you're now talking about 100 losses again next year and the year after that. Well, I think it's interesting because you can define tanking in a variety of ways. Personally, I'm not as anti-tanking as a lot of people. I understand the sentiment against it, but like I think you could make the case that the Nats did tank this season. Like if you define tanking as you're not devoting resources to that season. Well, that is what the Nats did this past offseason. They did not devote resources to this season, right? I mean, the only things they really did, they signed Nelson Cruz. Okay, that was a decent contract. I'll, I'll acknowledge that. But, you know, acquisitions like Cesar Hernandez and Michael Franco and Anibal Sanchez, I mean, that's tanking. Like, the Nats were a bad team last year, didn't do much this past offseason because the idea was they were going to be bad this season and then traded away their two best hitters in the middle of the season. Like, that to me is a tanking season. So, I guess you could argue the draft lottery is working in, in a sense of not rewarding the tank. Although, again, I think if you're trying to build a team up the right way, I think tanking actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, tanking doesn't mean you instruct your players to lose games. I, I think people so often misdefine what this is. Tanking is, again, you don't put all of your resources into that upcoming season. You operate with the bigger picture in mind as opposed to a win-now mentality. And we have seen that approach work for other teams. Another thing, too, is this, and I don't know if I've ever done this with you on this podcast or not, but I think it is ridiculous in MLB that you can't trade draft picks. I think this is one of the many examples of how baseball is just so stuck in the past. I think it would be so interesting for a rebuilding team like the Nats to have the ability to trade their first round pick. And, you know, you could have conversations of, hmm, are the Nats better off holding on to, say, their number four pick in the draft? Or should they trade and get a bunch of other picks, you know, like the old quantity versus quality conversation? But, you know, imagine how much fun MLB drafts could be if you could trade picks. Imagine how much fun trade conversations could be. Like, if you're trading away Juan Soto, do you want back prospects or do you want back picks and prospects, you know? And instead, it's like, no, you have this just this like stodgy MLB draft where everyone is slotted and you have to pick where you get your pick. And that's just the way that it has to be. And you can't get creative in a rebuild. I, I think that's something that MLB really should look at. But uh, I don't know. There doesn't seem to be a lot of movement for that, for the ability to trade draft picks. No, I'm with you on that. I think especially once you instituted this lottery system, I think that kind of defeats the the purpose of not allowing draft picks to be traded. I think it was always like, well, if you have the worst record, then you should use that to pick a good player who's going to help you win. Well, they're now in a different scenario than that. They did allow for the first time now, like these competitive balance 
picks or like international slot money, things like that to be traded, but not straight up regular draft picks. And yeah, that would be fascinating in the Soto trade, for example. Do you want Harleen Susana or do you want the Padres number one pick next year? That could be a fascinating discussion and help generate some more interest in things as well. Now, maybe you don't want to have the, okay, draft night trading of picks, maybe set a deadline so it doesn't get to that point. But yeah, no, I'm all for it. And just one other thought on the tanking. I'm, I'm with you in that tanking responsibly in my mind is prioritizing the future over the immediate. And I think every organization at some point needs to be in that position. The real concern is that you don't have the same franchises doing it year in and year out. And I think that was MLB's biggest concern, or really it's the Players Association's biggest concern, that teams like the Pirates, the Marlins, the Royals, the A's are purposely not spending money to try to pocket money for themselves, and therefore they're trying to lose without any intention of getting better and ultimately winning. The Nationals are not that. They spent lots of money. They had their window. They realized we're not ready to win again for a while. We're better off starting from scratch and losing games now with the intention of then using that to get better. So I think it's perfectly acceptable for you know every franchise over at some point over a decade to be in that position. The key is that you don't stay in that position for more than a year or two. In life, you should both drink responsibly and tank responsibly. Never forget that. <laughs> Well, it ends on Wednesday afternoon, a 4-10 first pitch. Eric Fetty will be the Nationals' final starting pitcher this season. We will see what transpires, and we will be back with you for the season finale installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email us NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram too at Nats Chat Podcast. You can get a Secret Weapon t-shirt or a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to Nats Chat Podcast dot square dot site and don't forget the first ever Nats Chat Podcast Party. You know, the Nats season may be ending, but the fun is just beginning. First ever Nats Chat Podcast Party, Friday night, October 14th at 7 at Walters, right across the street from Nationals Park. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Smiles and hugs. And Stassi is making his way out. And people start to realize what's happening, that Kurt Suzuki got the start, caught a strike. And he's getting a standing ovation. Wow, goosebumps here at the Oakland Coliseum. Everybody coming in.